We have all had painful events in our lives that can lead to depression, anxiety, addiction, or broken relationships. But here's a secret. It is not about what happened to us that causes suffering. It's the stories we believe about ourselves. Join us as we shine light on how to rewrite our stories, avoid the shadows of shame, and travel along the pathway to joy, love, and connection. It's the Finding Peace Podcast with your host, Amazon best-selling author, Troy L. Love. Hello, and welcome to the Finding Peace Podcast. Full disclosure, as I was interviewing my last guest, the one that you're going to hear in just a few minutes, I didn't realize that my microphone wasn't working. I had been having some technical difficulties, and it didn't even dawn on me that maybe I needed to unplug and re-plug in my microphone. So the whole time that I was interviewing Rusty, it turned out that it was using the webcam microphone instead of the normal microphone that I use. The sound isn't awful, but it is a different sound, and I just wanted to put that out there if you're noticing that maybe the sound is a little bit different than normal. Rusty LaHaye is someone who helps writers tell their stories. It's such a beautiful thing what she does, and I've found that there's a lot of healing in being able to tell the stories that we sometimes are ashamed to say. Rusty offers keynotes, breakout sessions, webinars, weekend retreats, and day-long writing seminars, and she's been doing it over a decade. She works as a creative writing instructor, and she uses her empathic, heart-centered approach to coach authors and beginning writers in order to tell their stories, write down the words, teach the lessons, using time-tested exercises. She encourages her writers to find and speak from their own voice. She helps them figure out what that voice is. Rusty believes if you have lived and breathed, you have a story. And being able to put words on a page is one of the most friendly places for reflection and self-examination. It's a delight to introduce to you now, Rusty LaHaye. Hello, Rusty. I am really excited that you are willing to be on the Finding Peace podcast today. I just am grateful that you're willing to spend some time hanging out with us. Thank you so much. You are very welcome. Finding peace is a lifelong journey. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about your day job and and what you do helping authors grow in their writing. I love to work with women, especially to tell the stories we've been told not to tell. And that has been so rewarding to work with women who have stories that they're not sure they might not ever want to publish them because when we first write, we are our first audience. And I like to say that the pen is mightier than the therapist. And mm-hmm. I have journaled myself to health in many ways. And I've also had the help of several professionals too. So beautiful. I absolutely believe that there's healing that comes from telling stories, writing our stories, even if nobody else reads them. So beautiful work. So what are some of the stories 
that you've been told not to tell that you want to tell? <laughs> An interesting question. It's kind of like one of the times when my class that I had been with for a long time were asking me, how do you have such a memory for book titles and authors and our stories? Because I could tell Vern, hey, remember that story you wrote three years ago about this? I think that story would go really well with the story you're writing today. And they said, how do you have this memory? And I said, do you really want to know? Do you really, really want to know? And by that time, a couple of them had put their hands down. And I said, when I was being molested by different men in my childhood, I would practice memorization games in my mind to take myself out of my body. Mm. And one of the, one of the, they were all family members in various ways. And one of them, when I went to confront them as an adult after some counseling at the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton, I had a really good talk. And I said that I, I understand why it happened. You know, we were both young. I was definitely younger and taken advantage of in that situation. And you were finding out who you were going to be. And I just, want you to know that if I ever think you're hurting another child, I will report you. And it's not the feelings that make you wrong. It's acting on them. And that you can get help. You can get help confidentially. So do that for yourself. Don't ever touch another child. And then my mother started in, you're destroying their marriage. Keep your mouth shut. You've got a promise to keep your mouth shut. I can't do that. And I wouldn't do that. So I never promised to keep my mouth shut. But I have found a way to write with compassion because I understand that pain inflicted does not come from a whole soul. It comes from somebody that also had pain inflicted. Mm -hmm. I believe this person was also molested when they were younger by another older, older family member. I would imagine that that was a really hard story to tell. It was at certain times, but you know, there's so much that I have learned that there isn't much energy to it anymore. There, peace, right? We're talking about finding I... peace. And the, the piece is in understanding that it didn't happen to me to make me a victim the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. It happened. And you know what? The stories we tell, like maybe it is a story that I tell myself that I have this fantastic memory and it serves me when I work with authors. Is there any harm in that story when it gives me power over the past? There are stories that cause harm, and I think there are stories that free us. So if this is a story I've told myself, and I found freedom in it, and I found peace in it, I can't find any blame in that. That's so beautifully said. I, I We say at the introduction of every podcast, it's not the bad things that have happened to us that cause us distress. It's the stories we end up telling ourselves as a result. And part of the Finding Peace process is helping 
rewrite these stories so that we aren't the victim anymore. I mean, yes, we have had bad things happen to us, but we're empowered. We are strong. We have light, love, gifts, and blessings. And to be able to connect with that and tell the the rest of the story, as it were, um, is empowering. So I'm really proud of you for continuing to write that story and come to a place of empowerment and courage and not that victim place anymore. That's beautiful. Thank you, Troy. You know, you just mentioned blessings and there was a little old lady that lived across the road from me when I was a child. We moved to that farm when I was two. And because we were in between the school lines, the one bus for that town was over there too far. And the bus that would take us to the other town we're in between was just about 300 yards from my driveway to the corner. And so my siblings had to walk past Mrs. Ladd's house mm. to catch the bus. And I would toddle across the field and she'd be watching for me. And she'd go, don't cross the road, honey, don't cross the road. I'll come and bring you a cookie. And she made these molasses cookies that were as big as a bread and butter plate and in her coal and wood stove. And I just loved those cookies. I mean, what child wouldn't, right? <laughs> and then when I got older, I could cross the road and I could go have tea with her. Huh. And then when I went to school, every morning she was there waving. And every afternoon she was there waving me in for tea and cookies. I come from a family of coffee drinkers. There are <laughs> more coffee drinkers. And by night they drank the harder stuff. But I have never drank coffee ever. She taught me how to drink tea. And wow. she's one of the reasons why I'm alive um, because she just had that unconditional love and it was that safe place. No matter what was happening in school, no matter how badly I was bullied. But you know, Troy, just three weeks ago in the shower, I all of a sudden laugh because I figured out why Mrs. Ladd gave me soap for every birthday, every Christmas, every Valentine's, every Halloween cat-shaped cat soap, I realized, and it goes back to being bullied, and that uh, I listened to one of your stories about how you told the stories about the witch in your basement. <laughs> I grew up with a coal furnace, and uh, like you said, coal is filthy. It's absolutely filthy. We'd open up the big hatch of the trap door, the coal truck would drop the coal in, all the dust would be flying everywhere. And when my brothers left the farm and my mother's back couldn't lift the coal, it was my job to lift the coal buckets and pour them into the hopper of the furnace. Mm. And without running water until I was nine, and then without hot water, um, it was not a really pleasant thing to wash up before going to school. Uh, I never realized that until this one bully took me by the shoulders in gym class and put me in front of the mirror and showed me my neck that was splotched. Like, it, imagine without the cracks, a dry desert and, and the, the way that the desert or the, the way the ground is with all these little splotches or whatever, um, little um, octagons like things, you know, exact. And that was what my neck looked like with coal dust and, and dirt. And I was uh, 
a dirty child. And, and just three weeks ago, that's, that's why Mrs. Ladd gave me soap. <laughs> <laughs> he loved me anyway. Um, and it was also the stories we tell ourselves that we don't even know. Because when you're, I, I, I read this and I know it from my own experience that when we're molested as children, we feel dirty. There's something wrong about it because it's not talked about. Mm -hmm. Hush, hush, or, or don't tell anyone. And you, you know, like we know it's wrong and we take on the blame as, as the victim. And um, my mother played a part in that too, because she would talk about girls being promiscuous. And so she perpetuated that story throughout my years, even as a younger adult, when uh, she would tell stories about things that had happened in town and she goes, those girls, you know? So even then in my early twenties, there was still the guilt. Mm -hmm. And then when I, uh, I, I, oh my goodness, this one, grade seven after elementary. And uh, that was when the bullying was the worst. In grade seven, they got a little cooler. They weren't calling me names anymore, but they were, you know, every now and then they'd push somebody into me and then they'd pretend that they couldn't touch that person because they had fleas. But all through elementary, it was flea bag, don't touch the flea bag. In grade seven, my mother made me go back to the elementary school Christmas concert and I snuck out to go to the bathroom and I destroyed a teacher's classroom. I broke chalk, I spilled tempura paint powder and glue on it and I gouged desks and chalkboards and turned things upside down, whatever I did. And I lied about it for weeks and I got away with the interrogation from my mother and the school principal. And the anger that I must have had at that time. But my mother kept on telling me she would know if I was lying. And I still got away with it. Hmm. You know, the statute of limitations on school vandalism, not sure. But I think I'm okay because there was just so much anger in me about all the things that had happened. And then when I was 29, and uh, my mother was going to go to Saskatchewan with her sister. And we knew that her sister's son-in-law was in jail for molesting his own children. And uh, the details you do not need to know, some things you can never unknow. And she was going to take my son with her to Saskatchewan. And I was okay with that as long as it was her and her sister. But then I found out that her sister's grandchildren were going to come. And I told my mother, no, it was the first time I had ever talked back to my mother at 29 years old. Mm. And uh, I was bike riding in Edmonton just past dark and it was starting to rain. And I was one of those crazy people that are yelling and swearing at the top of their lungs to themselves. <laughs> Oh, I was not saying very nice things about my mother, but I realized that, wait a minute, she made mistakes because she used to tell me when you're raising children, you never admit you made a mistake. And I went, that means that if she made mistakes with me, she never admitted them. She made mistakes with me. <gasps> you know, and all these revelations came in the moment that I said no to her. Wow. In the moment. Such an empowering story to learn how to say no. Yes. Yeah, no. 
it's it's not a word that came easily to me. I think it was shortly after that that I would put the big green letters on my phone and say no, because you can change a no to a yes, but you can't change a yes to a no that easily. Not with grace and integrity anyway. Right. No. So you were bullied a lot and and you've identified also being abused. Like a lot of which which you probably are familiar with what I call attachment wounds. A lot of those wounds of rejection and abuse and and all of those. And and how did you transform that? Because you identified being really angry. Um you, you have a book that's gonna be coming out in the near future about angry moms but i'm curious how you transform that anger into something that wasn't anger anymore hmm. that's where i think your story and my story a little bit uh, aligns a little bit because you talk about the need to tell stories that you wanted somebody to hear you or listen my mother catered to weddings and catered at auction sales to the Royal Canadian Legion. And so I had a chance to meet different people and different kids. I was always making friends at these events and I could reinvent myself outside of the school. And so I reinvented myself through stories. And then when I went to college and had a whole brand new community, to then become me, not just the stories I invented in those little one-off events, but to actually become me. That wasn't still the final part of the journey because it still took a lot more than that, but it was the start. And then when I went back to college in 1990 and I won the Student Life Leadership Award and I found out that I was smart, and that I was popular and that I was liked. Uh, in 1990, that was after a number of years of sexual assault center counseling, becoming a volunteer at the sexual assault center, going to the pastoral counseling institute for counseling. And a little bit of healing can make a person talk a lot about things that other people aren't that comfortable with. Right. <laughs> In the hallway of that college, uh, a whole bunch of us were sitting there and me, I'm the mature student, 30, and uh, a number of them are like, you know, 18, 19, and we're talking. And I casually mentioned that I was molested as a child. And then I started getting these notes in my locker that were signed anonymous, and they were just sticking out of my locker, and I would then put notes back sticking out that said to anonymous so only that person that was really aware would probably find them turned out that um my story freed her to be able to talk about it because her first note was how can you talk about that with such peace and and acceptance and i realized that I have a mission to free other people from the guilt and the shame. I have a responsibility to not be a holder of secrets and to free other people to tell their secrets that are holding them back. And because of that and the friendship and the starting a college publication there and winning the Student Life Leadership Award, when I went to do pastoral counseling and become a chaplain uh, intern at the Royal Alexandra Hospital 
I was telling the story about how I'd been bullied. And my supervisor, as you know, when one of your other stories, you said, I have nothing to heal or nothing to work on. I don't have work to do. <laughs> and so I'm telling the story of how I've been bullied. And my supervisor sits up and goes, that doesn't show up in any of your behavior or any of your, your you know, appointments or whatever. Like, how did you how did you heal that? Because he didn't see it. Like he was very astute. He caught me in other things that I still needed to do. Oh yeah, definitely there was other work I needed to do. But I said, you know, it was because I was able to reinvent myself and all those little one-offs. And then in Grant McEwen, when I first went to college straight off the farm, not quite completing it. And then after the counseling and going back to King's College as a mature student and and finding out people liked me for who I was. That was really healing, really profoundly healing. And I hadn't realized that that was the trail that it took. But until he like went, how did you heal that? I went, yeah, how did I? <laughs> yeah, sometimes you don't even recognize that the healing has happened, but no. you were able to overcome that rejection wound and realize that there are a lot of people in the world who love you, who yeah. are grateful for you, um, are your friend. Mm -hmm. True. And all the other part too that was in there was in because that was between 1978 leaving school then the college and marriage and divorce and then um, going back to school in 1990. But it was 1988 that was the 10 year high school reunion where I went back to tell all of the kids there why they bullied me. <laughs> and my, my nieces, and that's probably why they've never had another high school reunion. <laughs> or, or I've never been invited to any of the other ones. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I went back to my high school reunion and it was okay, but not, yeah. Just <laughs> it was, I went to school with the same kids from kindergarten through grade 12, except for mm. the last half when I went to graduate somewhere else. And uh, I, I told them that, uh, you know, I, I told them somewhat gently, I think, but probably bluntly, <laughs> is that when my dad died early in grade one, they needed to make me different because they didn't understand that my father had PTSD, that he was much older when I was born, that he was living a very unhealthy life. They didn't understand any of that because they all had, you know, the normal age of parents. My, my parents were already grandparents. I already had a nephew that was a year and a month older than me when I was born. Mm. And uh, I said that you needed to make me different. And so I understand that. And then I also felt different. I could never recover from that because I felt different because I was being molested. Mm -hmm. So if any of your children are being bullied or any of your children are being bullies, it might be a chance for you to stop some of that right at the get-go, right. you know, or to, to recognize those signs. And um, so, yeah, that was probably a bit heavy for a high school reunion. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had a voice and could say it. So if, if there's somebody who has a story that maybe they have not been allowed to tell or they've been terrified to tell, what do you say to them? That you are your first reader. You can rip up the pages from your journal and burn them if you wish. Burn them under a full moon. Take them and drown them in little bits of pieces of paper. Rip it up. Slash it down the toilet. Do whatever you want with it. But write it for you. You are your first audience. And we're all beginners when we face the blank page. 
In fact, maybe we're all beginners at life each day when we wake up and put our feet in the floor. Just write and give yourself that chance to do that. There's one of the authors I worked with that she went to, I don't know how many counseling sessions in her book she talked about where she couldn't say a word. And then the counselor gave her a journal and she wrote and she wrote and she wrote and she wrote. And then she would come to the counseling sessions and she could see that there was some writing in there, but she couldn't read them. And after five counseling sessions, the counselor said, may I read it? So even then, when you are afraid to talk, your journal can be your best friend. Mm -hmm. It's a private place. And if it's not safe in your own home, find a friend to leave it with. Find somebody that you feel safe with. That was how I, I left one relationship as I had a, a false email address that was not a false one, but a, a pseudo one, a pseudonym one that was a different password, a different browser, different, there was no trail where I could write things to two women friends to keep myself aware and awake of what needed to be changed in the relationship. And uh, that was a lifeline then too. So sometimes letters were my lifeline, but my journal, I have boxes of journals. And if nobody ever reads them, that's okay. They got me to where I am now. And still, when I have some conflicts, I turn to my journal pages and I write. Mm -hmm. There's there's something profound about writing. And I don't know exactly what it is, but being able to take what's in our mind and in our heart and putting it on paper, um, even just like with a pen and paper, not that there's anything around typing on a computer, that's great too, but there's something profound about just taking a pen, writing in a journal, being able to close the book when you're done. Um, there's just something so simple and yet so profound about that and healing when we take advantage of that. And it sounds like that was your experience. It certainly was. And there's science to prove it now, too. I mean, not only do we remember 80% of what we write by hand and only 20% of what we key in, but Dr. Caroline Leaf on a Impact Theory show with Tom Bilyeu, about 38 minutes into the recording, if you don't want to listen to all of it, she talks about exactly what happens in our brain when we write by hand. And then there's another place that I heard, and I don't know the science about it, but I heard that uh, the vibrations of the pen on the paper calm our parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. That's beautiful. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. The other part that strikes me, um, Brene Brown talks a lot about uh, what she calls the SFD, and I'll, I'll edit it for the podcast, but the crappy first draft, but you get what the S is the crappy first draft, um, she says, we all have one and it's okay. There's nothing shameful about having a crappy first draft. Write it out. We can edit it. We can change it. We can craft it. We can do whatever, but just get it out. Get it out from what we've been carrying around in our heart and in our head and put it on a piece of paper. It might be messy. It might not be pretty, but that's okay. It's a, it's a place to start. And that's, that's kind of what struck me as I'm hearing you stay giving the advice of just write, just find a sacred space, a journal, and just write. Absolutely. That's my signature saying, too, is to trust your first draft 
because your body knows what needs to come out and when you start writing. And I give prompts that, that help. Like, you wouldn't believe the amount of stories and the interesting stories that will come out when I ask a group to write about their first car and did they name it? there's a lot of stories there i mean like from your first car the it could be it was the freedom or it was the junk heap or it was a way to get away from home or it was the first time that you kissed a boy <laughs> there's so many stories that come out with that prompt the other one is like what happened in your home on sundays mm. that can be a really interesting prompt too and then there is this one woman that I absolutely loved her. She's no longer with us. And she wrote this amazing book in, eight, in her 80s. And one of the poems was, If My Mother Were a Piece of Furniture. And I give that prompt. And it's amazing what people come oh, back wow. with. Too. I love that one. Yeah, if my mother were a piece of furniture, she'd be a hard cherry wood chest with a lock and key. And she'd be the only one who would know where the key was um and so and then she did another one and if my mother were um food on the table she'd be bread and butter pickles just sour enough to make your mouth scrunch up for something that, like she just but it's such a great prompt um to get people thinking and things will come out that you don't even know or have never thought about for years those, those are great i'm gonna a good thing i'm recording this because i'm gonna i'm gonna use them that's beautiful thank you you're welcome. So you've, you've grown a lot. You found such peace. You've had so many life experiences. And now you're blessing women. Uh, you're blessing women and helping them begin to tell some of these stories. What has been some of the transformations that you've witnessed? One or two transformations that you've witnessed as these women have had the courage to do what you had the courage to do and begin to tell their stories. They become a healing light for other women. There is uh, one of the, well, the woman that I went to college with, she is a guiding light for other women to discover their sexuality. She um, came out as gay a couple of years after, and one of the other women um, was not always a woman. She uh, became truly herself when she went through the transgendered operation procedure. Those are the big major changes. But some of the subtler ones are realizing that, hey, we're not victims and anger is okay when we have a proper outlet for it. When we don't, some of the people we love get caught in the crossfire. Do we really want that? Mm -hmm. No, so there's subtle things. Well, I am I am grateful. I'm sure those women are grateful for the work you've done to help them have the courage to tell their story, especially when they've been told their whole life they're not allowed. So thank you for helping people connect with their truth. Where, Rusty, can people find you? <laughs> Rusty is one of those tricky names. Uh, it's R-U-S-T-I, so it's with an I, not a Y. It's a name, not a condition. My father had a sense of humor. And uh, it's Rusty Lehay on LinkedIn, Instagram, and also rustylehay.info is my website. So, and we'll definitely, <laughs> we'll definitely put those links in the show notes for people so they can find you. 
Wonderful. It's been delightful spending some time with you, Rusty. I enjoy your light. You and I are in a group together. That's how I was able to meet you and just being able to get to know you even a little bit more uh, more today, tonight, and just spending some time with you has been absolutely delightful. Thank you for sharing your light with me. Mm, thank you. And here's hoping that everyone finds the peace they long for. Me too. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Well, thank you so much. And I hope that you have a beautiful rest of your day. You've been listening to the Finding Peace podcast. If you loved the show or want to ask a question, let us know by going to TroyLLove.com. There, you can also learn about the Finding Peace 5-Day Challenge. Remember to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss the next episode. And if you are listening on iTunes, please give us a 5-star rating. It helps other people find this podcast more easily. Thank you for spending part of your journey with us. Copyright Finding Peace Consulting.